Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Office Hours, Career Pathways for PhDs. My name is Jasmine Goodman, and I am I always say I'm excited, but it's because I am. But today's PhD actually has a comms background, which I also have a comms background. So I know we're going to have a lot to talk about. Her name is Dr. Rebecca Constantini. She is a UX researcher at Wiley and also an adjunct at Villanova. She earned her PhD in organizational comm from Texas A&M University. So I will bring her on Hello, how are you? Hi, I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me, Jasmine. It's great to be here. Thank you. And thank you for agreeing to join. We were just talking a few moments ago just about our experiences and transitioning from tenure track to the academy or to commercial opportunities. So I would love to learn more about what we call your journey into the wild. So what led you into your PhD program? Absolutely. So It was probably during my undergraduate years, I attended a public university, small university in New Jersey called William Patterson University. And what really inspired me was my journey and specifically professors in my undergrad um, who kind of cultivated this curiosity to go explore more. Um, But I always had this plan for myself. I, I knew that I was really interested in education. I wanted to be in publishing. And then after I had a career in publishing, I wanted to pursue a PhD. And that actually happened. So after my undergrad, I was first employed by Wiley and I'm I'm back with Wiley, which is a plot twist, but I'll talk about that later. Um, I I was employed with Wiley as an editorial assistant for the business accounting and finance discipline textbooks and also learning management system, um, which was really exciting. And I stayed with Wiley for about four and a half years until I decided that it was time to go pursue a PhD. I saw the one side of the industry where all of the textbooks are being made and the content is being reviewed and crafted. And that was a really interesting side of the industry. And now I wanted to kind of go to the research teaching service um, uh, side of that industry. So kind of getting that holistic um, approach. So I, I entered my PhD in 2017 at Texas A&M, and I pursued organizational communication, which wasn't always the plan. I was really interested in PR and more of that strategic comm before actually seeing the broader organizational communication offering. Um, but I was steered to ORCOM uh, by my advisor, uh, Dr. Anna Wolf, and I spent some years cultivating the research in that area through identity and identification. And then it was time to get out on the job market. And I was on the job market uh, in 2020 and 2021, like we were discussing before this. That was the COVID time, peak COVID. Um, It was a tough job market, but I always knew in my mind that it was going to be tenure track or bust. That's what I've been told. That was the dream that we were all told that we needed to achieve, um, specifically um, at a at a prestigious school. Um, and that it was just something that we've been told from, from the beginning. And I never really stopped to question why. I just knew that I needed that or else I was a failure or mm-hmm. I wasn't necessarily going to make it. And I ended up getting a job after struggling with interviews and um, just just struggling during COVID, I ended up getting a job at the University of the Sciences in Philadelphia, which is where I'm currently based. Mm-hmm. And it's a it was a small, um, very specialized school in in medicine and hard sciences and STEM, and it was a non tenure track job, and that was 
that brought on a lot of feelings when I first got the job because I was seeing friends around me get tenure track jobs and all that was offered to me at the time was a non-tenure track job. And I definitely had to take it because at the time I had no other career offerings and I took it and I really was enjoying my job, but the school ended up closing due to a merger with St. Joseph's university in the area. And I, I was most certainly going to lose my job in this merger. And so I had to find um, either A, go down the job market again, the academic job market, or B, um, go back into industry. And I wanted to kind of peek into industry and see what it had to offer again, because I was in industry before my PhD. And I wanted to see what was there. And I peeked through the door and it seemed like there was more opportunity there. And I made the the difficult decision in January of 2021 to to leave the academy and to hop back into industry, which is where I've been um, ever since. So it was kind of a winding road. um, And I'm still finding that I'm mourning the the leaving academia in a full-time capacity, uh, which is I'm still grappling with. And I'm sure a lot of folks are because you put so much work and time and dedication into, into this, this career path. And then you find that you're kind of, Topping off that career path for for a good you know for 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 the better it's great it's all positive but I still find that I'm I'm dealing with kind of mourning that um, departure so that's been really interesting to grapple with so in a very long winded way no. that is my uh, that is my story up until this point but I think it's also important to give yourself space to mourn because for the amount of time that you were in your program that was the goal. And to graduate and then be on the academic job market, which is brutal, not just in, you know, the limited opportunities, but also just the process for every application. You're having to do all of these different things. So it's such a process. So it is important to give yourself space to mourn that because it's not an easy decision. I don't think anyone just says, nope, I'm done. And they just leave. You know, there's a lot of internal work and conversation that takes place before you decide to jump into something different. I agree. And especially since that, you know, this, this has been told to us from the start of our PhD programs that the, the goal is to achieve that tenure track role. Um, I know a lot of programs are trying to switch that mentality where tenure track is not the end all be all. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's still difficult because you feel like in some way, shape or form that you're, you're kind of not achieving that goal that you set out to achieve. You put in all the time in the coursework and the comprehensive exams, your dissertation. I feel like my dissertation is languishing and I, I'm just, I I visit it every now and again. And I I say, I really want to do something with you, but I mean, I have a full-time job and um, it's not that I'm neglecting the work because it was a lot of work, but there are just different priorities now. And I think that's okay. And I also think that there are ways to keep in touch um, with parts of the academy that are um, that I really enjoyed. For example, I'm an adjunct this semester at, at Villanova in the Department of Communication, which has been really great to connect back into teaching. And I think that's awesome. Uh, and I would love to continue doing that. But um, I think there are ways to stay connected, but you you can't have your whole self in that role anymore because you're now dedicated to something else, something new that um, you have to find the fulfillment in. Yeah, and that's a great transition into a section we title Nuts and Bolts. 
So getting to, you know, how did you exactly transition from the academy into, and I know UX research is very popular right now. There are lots of commentary on social media between LinkedIn and also Facebook. So I know that you had the established relationships and rapport at Wiley before joining. What was the conversation like when you wanted to go back in a different capacity? Yeah. So I think my, the job search, uh, it was, it was quite a lot. And in such a short period of time, because I was motivated by the fact that I was going to be losing my job at the university of the sciences. So my, my job search, my industry job search became a full time job. In addition to my, my duties as a non-tenure track assistant professor of teaching and service and doing some of the research on the side. So what I really did was I turned to LinkedIn and I used LinkedIn as my database for all things job. And user experience research is really interesting because it still kind of weaves together some of that classic research training that we receive in a PhD program, whether you're qualitative or quantitatively focused, but you're really diving deep into how your customers or specific product users are interacting with services or experiences on various different levels. Um, And so I found that my skills could really transition well into a user experience researcher role. They could also transition very well into any other kind of research application or capacity roles. But basically what I did was I took to LinkedIn. I I kind of did like a, um, almost like an audit or, um, or like a, an analysis of all the different jobs that were open at the time. And I culled through and did this content analysis of all of the job descriptions for, for keywords, phrases, responsibilities, things that were expected of the role. And I kind of put them together and collated them into an analysis um, and was able to target my job search that way. I also spent time creating a website, turning my, my very scholarly uh, research projects into practical application impact um, deliverables, and that it, okay. it, that felt really, really odd because the projects that I did um, were were really for the the participants and the organizations that I worked with, and not necessarily thinking about business impact because that was so foreign. But that's what mattered, though, and I had to do that through creating a portfolio, through rebranding myself in a, a different way. So scholarly identity turned into more professional researcher identity. And I'm still working that out because that's that's quite a transition. So I really spent a lot of time rebranding myself, rebranding my projects, rebranding my the ways in which I do research and pack, packing that into a, uh, a website and then packing that ultimately into a one-page resume and a one-page cover letter, which was super difficult because our CVs are typically... At, at the end of a PhD program or early career, eight, eight to 10 pages, I guess, like very long. Um, so it was a lot of repacking and rebranding. And Wiley um, was not my first um, industry job out, out of University of the Sciences. It was actually with a, um, a B2B software as a, a service startup where I first kind of made my entry back into industry as a user experience researcher Mm -hmm. on a team that really 
valued the experiences of, of folks who have PhDs or those higher degrees. And then after that, um, that entry, I, I hopped back over to Wiley because I knew I still wanted to work again in an educational capacity. I still wanted to work with folks who were heavily involved in research because I'm, I'm really very passionate about making the experience of for example, submitting journal articles or um, submitting research or making research accessible happen. Mm -hmm. And I knew that could happen at Wiley on the team that I'm currently on. So it was very serendipitous that this role was open and I'm continuously looking at open at open roles just to see how the job market is evolving. But it was a lot of Long story short, it was a lot of rebranding, a lot of repackaging, a lot of looking at other folks' websites, artifacts. It took so much time. And like I said, it was really a full-time experience doing that, but it was it it had to be done. Right. But I love that you were able to bring in that research skill set in the job process. So constant analysis of like <laughs> I love that because there is a lot of there's a difference in the language that we use between, you know, academic versus non-academic work. And so what's a better data set than job descriptions that are already out there? I want to go back to so your first position once you were out of the academy, tell me about your first day at work. Tell me about day one. What was it like to be in this new role with this new professional identity that you've created for yourself? I had a ton of imposter syndrome and I I think everyone deals with imposter syndrome, but I think making this really rapid shift from going from an assistant professor to a user experience researcher, going from a very unstructured time of having, you know, classes at different times and having a a little bit more free time and flexibility with your schedule to a 40 hour work week. Again, it was, it was a 180 really. And I, I was very overwhelmed because I felt that my, my language and how I located my, my methods and the ways that I did things uh, was not immediately translatable in my industry job. So when I was creating research plans, I was, I was being very in depth with, you know, um, what the questions that I wanted to ask or my discussion guides. And um, at the end of the day, it had to be a little bit more simplified. It had to be a little bit more uh, faster. And I'm, I think there's a, there's a common kind of misconception that um, academic work is slow. And when you get into industry, it's fast paced. Well, academic work is also fast and industry is also fast, but they're two different types of fast. In industry, you need to get things done in a really timely manner to meet deadlines, to to um, increase business impact. And projects always have to relate back to that business impact. How are your research projects, you know, helping the business move forward? Whereas your research projects as a as an individual scholar or on a team of researchers are really um, trying to create differences for social impact, for example, in the communication discipline, um, really trying to understand the nuances of one particular type of organizational complex mm-hmm. uh, um, um, uh, context, for example. And whereas for, with the industry related work, it's all about that business impact. How are you increasing that business impact? And 
it was, it was really, it took a while to get used to. Um, and I think I'm still getting used to that too, right? Where I have to create discussion guides and research artifacts in a way that um, I could really tangibly tie back and say, this is how I'm impacting our team. This is how I'm impacting the business. And this is, this is how I'm doing it. And so it, it really trickles down and Im- impacts all of the different artifacts and processes and the methods that I do, whereas as a um, as a as a scholar, as an individual researcher, that didn't happen. So I felt a lot of imposter syndrome uh, that I had to work through. I had to simplify my processes and really think very strategically about the language that I was using, about you know the depth that I was getting into some of my discussion guides because that wasn't necessarily needed, um, and sometimes maybe even hindered projects. Right. And I think it's always important when you're doing commercial work is to go back to what were the actual goals? Like always go back to the goals, because as scholars, we always want to go down this. Oh, well, this could be interesting. Oh, this might be a fun question to ask. And they're they're not concerned. They It might be fun and interesting, but they want to know very specifically what those questions are, what those goals are. So what were maybe some resources that you used as you were working your way through learning this UX research language? Yeah, so definitely, again, I use LinkedIn and I I made sure to kind of uh, document a little bit in the beginning of my transition some of what I was experiencing and I, I created some some different posts that gained quite a bit of traction. So I, I really networked with with folks that I never would have reached out to on LinkedIn. There are also several um, user experience reference materials that I still go to, um, different websites, um, really just uh, Googling uh, different organizations that have really mastered user experience research methodologies. Um, I've looked at um, several different kind of startups and, and folks and mentors who are established um, in the in the industry, and um, even after this, um, even after this talk, I'm happy to provide a, a list of resources um, that I that I constantly go back to 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 hone the craft because I think it's incredibly important. And I think even as um, a seasoned UX researcher, we're always, um, no matter who you are, if you're seasoned, if you're basic, you're always going back to look at resources. So I'm happy to curate that list um, and provide it so it's it's freely open and accessible. No, thank you. And that's also difficult as you're transitioning is knowing, you know, what's valid, what's not valid, what's current, what's not current, because research is always changing. Technology is always changing. So thank you for providing those resources. Now, what prompted your transition back to Wiley? I know you talked about wanting to get back into the publishing industry. What was that process like for you? Yeah. So um, another really interesting process. So when I was at um, the the SaaS startup um, for about four months in, three or four months in, uh, we were told that our team was going to be reduced in force. So again, I found myself in another uh, position of losing my job. And so it was survival mode again. And the Wiley role was very serendipitous. It, it kind of just appeared one day in my job search. And mm-hmm. I remember I, I spent a lot of time trolling LinkedIn, looking at open positions. I felt like I was on LinkedIn all day, every day. Yes. And I found the the role and I, I, I made some connections with folks who I previously had connections with um, and kind of went from there. So it was it kind of manifested from networking opportunity, from networking opportunities that I took advantage of. Mm-hmm. And 
I remember uh, starting those conversations, having some of those informational discussions, and then um, all of a sudden we were in the interview process. The interview process was pretty rapid, but um, and then after that, I was I was offered the role. So it, it was it kind of really started and took off from from those networking opportunities, um, and not necessarily from folks that I worked with in the past from 2013 to 2017, but folks that I, I kind of connected with um, over the years after. I initially started working at Wiley. So um, networking, and I know a lot of people say this, but networking definitely helps. Even if you cold message somebody, um, the worst that they could do is just not respond. But I, I can't tell you how many times I have cold messaged folks over this past year. I mean, uh, hundreds, I sent hundreds of messages over LinkedIn, just wanting informational talks or to learn more about a role that they posted. And there are, there are some really great strategies in order to reach out to folks on LinkedIn. Um, most folks are really happy to speak with yeah. you about their experiences, which I found, which was great. Um, but, but yeah, so I think networking really helped me secure this Wiley role um, and you know, made where I am today possible. So that, that was awesome. Now with your day-to-day responsibilities, I love to learn more about when you're, you're tasked with a project or a new project comes up. Tell me about that process and how you go about doing that work. So we're a really collaborative team uh, at, at Wiley, the team I'm currently on, and we really work through things together. So we're always in a process of constant discovery, trying to figure out the best possible strategies and solutions in order to move forward to serve other teams within the organization. And so it's a lot of discussion. We go through a lot of our methodologies and really try to determine what fits best for the projects. We do a lot of charting out and planning. So it's, I am a user experience researcher by title, but I also feel that I am a project manager too in the way that I'm um, planning out these projects, putting together timelines, interacting and communicating with different product teams within Wiley that we're serving. So I also feel not only am I a researcher, but I'm also a liaison and I'm also constantly planning and, and updating things in order to keep um, projects on track. So it's a lot of collaborative work, a lot of charting out, thinking out loud, planning, which I, I really appreciate. And I think user experience research looks different in, in many different organizations or, or, or across kind of teams. And um, it all depends on the users that you're serving and, and the products that you're ultimately trying to improve or to create. And so for Wiley, and on my team, we're trying to improve the, the editorial and the author experience um, all around our products. And uh, we're dealing with a very specific user type, right? We're dealing with authors, we're dealing with editors, peer reviewers, folks that are actively involved in kind of the scholarly ecosystem. So they're a very specific type of user. Whereas at my my previous company at the startup, we were dealing mostly with folks that were B2B. So we were dealing with um, kind of organization to organization communication or, or folks that were in charge of facilitating those relationships. So there are several different kind of users and different capacities. And so those inform our product, the way that we kind of um, establish our projects as well. So a uh, very collaborative, very user-centered, um, very planning forward and focused. That is an important point I want to emphasize. What you said about project management, 
I always thought I'd just be doing research. I never managed or I never imagined the amount of project management work that I would be doing. So and thinking about the academic research I've done, the project management skill set was always there. We just didn't call it that. So a lot of people who will see this interview, they're already built in project managers. They already know how to manage stakeholders. So they had to manage, you know, their committees and their professors. So there's a lot of that that can translate. We just have to place value on it and not just see it as something they we had to do to get the work done because project management and stakeholder engagement, all of those things are important. If you really sit back and think of the work that you've done in your PhD, you are a senior project manager. You are a senior consultant. You, I mean, and that that is so important because I feel like we are not encouraged or trained to see our experience as work. And I got that a lot on the industry job market where some folks didn't see my PhD experience as work. And I was so taken aback by that because it was work. It was a lot of work. Yeah. I mean, it was a lot of, like you were saying, managing stakeholders, scheduling participants, uh, liaising with the IRB and your committee and um, collaborating with other students or peers. And I mean, for, for my dissertation, for example, I interviewed 67 folks at the height of the pandemic via Zoom. And I had to manage those schedules and manage those participants and, and, and that is something that I actually used in my interviews to show my flexibility and versatility. And I think we have a lot of problems as PhDs translating that experience into business speak because we don't have that language because we're not encouraged to locate our experiences in that language necessarily during our programs. But we have a ton of project management experience. And I really wish that more PhD programs empowered students to see it that way because I think, A, that would give a lot more kind of uh, free range as to, you know, how are my skills translatable and transferable? And B, it wouldn't necessarily put the emphasis always on, you know, you have to package your experience and for the tenure track job. You can actually package it for other job experiences. And that would be a game changer, really, because at the end of the day, we are truly all very skilled and adept project managers, 100%, no matter what focus you have in your PhD, we are all project managers. Right. And even to your point about being able to be flexible with your methods. So I was talking to one hiring manager and they wanted to know, okay, so if you had four weeks to get the project done, what would your method be? Well, if you only had two weeks, how would your method change? So even being able to demonstrate that you can think through how you would employ different methods based on the constraints that you have is an amazing approach. And I know I had to shift my methods a couple of times in conversations with my dissertation committee because we, you know, there were constraints in place. And so if I couldn't get access to one space, I had to come up with a backup plan. And that is all valuable. Now, I want to dig into the types of methods that you are employing in your work. So tell me more about what methods you're using on a project to project basis. So I am trained specifically as a qualitative researcher. I was trained in interview techniques. I was also trained um, in focus group techniques as well. So I really carried that with me, you know, tried and true. I'm, I'm a qual person. However, I had to really adapt my 
um, my methods and my skill sets, because as a user experience researcher, you need to use the best method that is appropriate for the project and the project constraints. Also considering timeline as well, because interviews are not always the most time efficient approach to get the information that you need in a fast way. So I have not only been doing interviews, I have also been um, creating surveys and I'm analyzing survey data and learning a little bit more about um, what it takes to do quantitative data analysis um, in specifically Excel right now, but I really want to grow that out a little bit further. So I'm finding that I'm I'm expanding my my methodological skill set um, very rapidly based on the demands of the projects that I am am needing to um, consult on. Um, but I think there's really great opportunities to do that. Um, there are really great resources to do that. So um, I again, I always thought that I would be tried and true qual doing interviews, focus groups, sticking with content analyses, doing some more of that very qualitative generative work. But now I'm really stepping out into more quantitative approaches. Uh, never thought I would do that, but um, it's really helpful um, and it's able to kind of enhance who you are as a professional, um, not only just generally, but also as a researcher. So, so yes, yeah, so I'm still doing interviews, still doing some of that qualitative stuff, but then also stepping out into, into surveys and to, to survey data analysis. Now let's talk about report writing. So what was the transition like for you to come transition from academic writing to commercial UX report writing for people who may or may not have the academic background? Simplification. Simplify, simplify, simplify. I think we are trained very well to write very eloquently and to really have the space to expand on our thought processes, to explore but that is not what is needed in a report that will probably be read um, in 20 to 30 seconds. You need to know the highlights. Um, this is this is what we found, et cetera. There's really uh, no space to expand or maybe perhaps in a presentation setting, there's a little bit more freedom to expand and to explain and explore, but not in a report. And I found that in a lot of the research plans that I was writing and a lot of the PowerPoints that I was designing, I was taking a lot of space to to really kind of lay out the project in very long-term or long-form uh, writing. And I thought it was really important because I've always included such detail in my literature reviews and my methods sections and the discussion. And I'm thinking of the articles that I authored in the past. And that is not what is needed. Yeah. Bullet points are needed. Brevity is needed. If folks want more information from you, you can include your email at the end of the report, or you can offer time to review the report in more depth. So it was a lot of learning how to condense longer, more detailed, nuanced things into bullet points. And that's something that I'm still learning. It's still a process because it's quite a shift in, in thinking where you're, you're so you're so used to uh, putting so much detail into your writing and what is now needed is is brevity and getting to the point and how how did you get from point A to point B and how can you explain that to me um, in, in a couple bullet points? Right. Especially I'm thinking about academic work. We spend so much time justifying our method and how we did it and why we did it. 
where in commercial work, they've already decided on the method. And sometimes someone else has decided on a method. You just have to execute. So you need to focus on being able to share the findings, but also be able to discuss the implications and what it means for that end user. Yeah. And sometimes it's not even important why you chose your specific method or why, like, it's not important necessarily to justify that because they stakeholders ultimately want to know the end result or or what was yielded from what you ultimately did and not necessarily concerned with, you know, how you, or what you did to get there. They're just concerned with, you know, the how or, or how the, the questions that you were asking ultimately got to the results that you're presenting. So not necessarily really interested in how you conducted the interviews, but what actually came up the interviews, for example. So that's also been an interesting mind shift. Yeah. That's one thing too. Uh, Dr. Savannah Young, we had her on, I think she was our second interview. She talked about having just her own personal ethics for to make sure that her research was always sound because they're not always asking those questions about how you did it. So she's had to make sure that she has her own procedures to make sure that in terms of rigor and ethics, everything is in place. But she now knows that they're not really concerned about all the things that she did and how she arrived at that as long as um, there she's delivering the requested output or deliverable. Now, I'd love to learn more about the culture shift. So academic work, non-tenure track teaching, you have a very flexible schedule. You essentially, you have more autonomy over your day. Now that you're in corporate, tell me what that shift has been like for you. So it's been interesting because I've worked remotely. I feel like for the past, I don't know, since, since COVID, I also had a pretty flexible um, in-person remote experience at the university of the sciences, but since transitioning fully into industry, I've worked completely remotely. So I haven't had to go travel or commute into an office. My, my commute is just down the hall. Right. But I I still think there are um, some shifts that, I'm still getting used to or reacquainted with um, specifically, you know, the workday starting at nine, it's ending at five and being on always, right? Um, Obviously you can walk away, you can have lunch, but there's a lot more structure in the day. There are a lot more meetings. Um, There's a lot more um, collaboration with colleagues at the University of the Sciences. I was the one of two um, comm professors. So really it did not have a lot of interaction with a lot of comm folks in my department because we were so multidisciplinary. Now I'm constantly interacting and collaborating. I'll bite, you know, be it, you know, we're on Zoom or we're on Teams, but still there's a lot more FaceTime. There's a lot more checking in. There's a lot more um, um, kind of going back to the accountability, showing the work that I'm doing, giving updates. So it's a lot more structured and, and I don't mind that. Um, but what's really interesting though, and what's a, a really uh, a culture shift that I'm still trying to get used to is when it's five o'clock, you turn everything off. You don't carry the workday with you. You don't carry it out of your office door. It's done and you don't work on the weekends. And I found that as a a non-tenure track assistant professor, and even as a PhD student, constantly working on the weekends. I mean, every single day, it felt like 24 hours, 365, you're always on, you're constantly working. It's either it's a teaching prep or you're trying to critique an article or, or you're trying to send something out to a conference. You're always on, you're always working. And some people really thrive with that, but others 
such as myself, you, you kind of feel it a little bit. You feel it mentally, you feel it emotionally. You're always carrying this work around, but I turn my laptop off. I don't think about work on the weekends. I have time and room to actually enjoy teaching at Villanova. Um, and I, and I do that in my free time, but you turn it off though. And I think that is a major shift in, in how we're thinking about work. And, and my, my thinking about work is also evolving too, right? Because when you're in the academy, work is what, you know, you live and breathe. Your, your research is really um, important and you're to support your tenure case, your teaching, your service. And you're always thinking about it because you're trying to work up to tenure and it's, it's so, it's so stressful and you feel like you always have to be on. Whereas here, I mean, you could, you're doing a good job or you, you're striving to do a good job during the nine to five day, but, but then you turn it off and then that's okay. That's okay to do. You shouldn't feel guilty about doing that. And again, that's like a, a really big shift in the way that I'm viewing work and I'm sure others are viewing work when kind of making that academic to industry transition. How have you been able to still explore your academic roots? So through publishing, have you had time to do that type of work? What does that look like for you? So I have not had as much time as I wanted to revisit my dissertation or revisit articles that are still kind of unfinished, could use a little bit of, you know, TLC, but I, I do want, I do want to revisit them it's just about finding that balance and that time to do so. I found that after I left university of the sciences, I just needed a break from it all. And I put my dissertation to the side. I put a lot of other work that I've been doing to the side and said, I just, I kind of need to have this break in this space. But now I'm starting to get to a place where I'm itching a little bit to revisit my dissertation or to revisit those, those manuscripts that are unfinished. And um, I I really want to make time for that, but I'm currently making time for, for teaching. So I'm teaching one course this semester in organizational development and change. And that is also really great too, because I also feel like I needed some distance from, from teaching, but now I'm back in it and it feels reinvigorating a little bit. It feels great to be back in touch with, with teaching again, but it's on my terms because it's not my whole career. Uh, it's, it's something that I'm doing in my free time. It's something that I I'm choosing to do, choosing to be reintroduced to again. So I think it's going to take some time, but I definitely want to figure out what that looks like and how I can make it work where it doesn't become a chore where I'm actually enjoying it because I found that the joy was just sucked out of of all of that at the end of my time at university of the sciences. It just, it didn't, if I felt deflated, I didn't feel motivated, but I, I want to maintain this motivation and excitement, but it's just finding that balance that it's, it's still missing for me. Yeah. In our first interview with Dr. Brandel Mills Cox, she talked about, cause she went from tenure track industry, tenure track, and now she's consulting. And she talked about having a hard time finding that balance But I think it's important to recognize where you are and recognize what you need for your current life stage and just be okay with it. Because as you mentioned, having the time away from it allows you to view it now with fresh eyes. So you're not kind of bogged down in the monotony of, you know, okay, I have to teach. Now I have to grade. Now I have to lesson prep and all those things. So that is important. And then it's also important 
to um, just engage with the work on your own terms and know that, you know, you're creating your own definition of what success looks like for you. You're still capable, um, but there's there's so much labor attached to academia that we it's like, you know, it's there. But until you step away from you don't realize how much pressure you were truly under to perform. So thank you for sharing that insight. Yeah. Oh, oh, for sure. And I feel like once that that performative aspect is taken out of the equation, you actually can in, enjoy the work that you're doing because the pressure becomes so much. Sometimes you actually lose that joy and that's awful, like feeling that way. Um, so yeah. it's, again, it's about that rediscovery, finding that balance. I'm, again, I'm, I'm, I like many other folks are probably trying to, again, find that balance, yeah. um, but, but it, it can be achieved. It's just, it's figuring out how. Yeah. I even find myself reading books from my bookshelf like, oh, I can read it for fun now. And it's not because there's a paper due, but I'm actually going to read this entire book and not, you know, do my academic scan. That is amazing. That is so interesting. You brought that up because I actually just picked up one of my organizational communication texts from mm-hmm. from my uh, the beginning of my PhD program and was reading it and flipping through it and without that pressure of having to perform for coursework or perform for the research, it was actually, like you said, a really enjoyable experience to, to just sit with the text, to, to think about what is being said um, without that kind of pressure aspect. And I find that I'm, I'm doing that a little bit more and I'm doing it in the class that I'm teaching now um, where I'm actually reading the texts, enjoying them, experiencing them. It's, it's really interesting and a feeling that I've never had before. So it's very cool. Yeah. And one of my my favorite moments are being on my porch, reading something interesting and, you know, and not feeling is again, it's just that pressure, just being able to step away from it. So I love that you shared that. Now, when you are in conversation with either doctoral students or, you know, recent PhDs who are looking to transition, what are some words of wisdom or advice that you share to just let them know they're going to be okay? Because they really are going to be okay. Yeah, they are. Yeah. <laughs> It's, it's so interesting because whenever I offer advice, it's, I always feel a little weird because everyone's experiences are so different. And I think just from my experience, um, one of the pieces of advice that I always try to offer is to put your work into perspective and to really, as we were talking about before, really try to evaluate what you have done up until this point in your PhD career, whether you're still a student, a candidate, whether you're early career faculty, try to put your work into perspective and see how it can relate to those industry jobs that you could see yourself fitting in. So that's kind of the practical kind of wisdom. But the the more so emotional, mental support type of wisdom is that it feels bumpy now, but in the end, it will all work out. And I always hate when people say, oh, you'll be fine. It'll work out. It feels very dismissive. But the truth is you will be okay because you have been resilient up until this point. It is no easy feat to get into a PhD program, to secure that spot. Yeah. <laughs> to go through the program, you are a resilient individual. And the fact that you have gotten this far in your program is telling enough and testament to the fact that you will make it. It right. might take some time. It might take some rebranding, like what I had to go through, but 
you are resilient and you should be confident in the fact that your resilience will continue to carry you forward. Right. Because getting into a PhD program and then actually graduating from the program, that's the hard part. Yes. <laughs> that was the hard part. Everything else, I think, is us putting our that that harsh or that hard mentality. We're putting that perspective on the industry work. And I remember my very first agency role, my boss, she said to me, she's like, no one's going to die because we didn't do this right. It's going to be OK. And I was like, you know what? No one's going to die. But I had so much anxiety around just wanting to perform because I felt like, you know, they and everyone's like, oh, you have a PhD. So even people's perceptions of what it means for you to have the degree is like, I'm I'm a regular person. I've done a lot of research and reading and writing, but I felt like I had to live up to this expectation that I felt people had of me because I had it when I could just show up as, as Jasmine with an extended research skill set and still be completely okay. So I had to. I had to calm my own nerves down because I was, I was doing a lot. Yeah, no. And that's, and that's incredibly true. And I feel like when people see PhD after your name, they automatically assume or, or just have like some sort of expectations of you that, that you are, um, that you are kind of almost out of reach a little bit or that you're so advanced that I cannot talk to you, but (laughs) that's not the case. And I like how you put that. It's an extended skill set that you are bringing to your job and that you are just Jasmine. I'm just Rebecca. And I am, I'm very excited to collaborate with folks and offer these skills as an enhancement, not necessarily like I'm better than you or, or this PhD means something that like I'm inaccessible because I've have, I have all this crazy knowledge. Well, no, we're always all learning. It's just that I chose to go get something a little bit more specialized and things like that. So that's a, that's really um, a really interesting way to put it, like the extended skill set. That's all it is. And like I said, to everyone watching, you're going to be okay. Just unclench your jaw and just breathe. Um, I wish, and I think people may have told me that, but I wasn't listening. I was like, no, I need to know how to do all these things. But on the other side of it, I'm okay. We're having productive conversations. So Rebecca, thank you so much for sharing your time. We are going to include all of your information and all the resources that you mentioned in the episode description. So for those who are watching, you will have access to it. And how can people, you know, follow you on social media or online? Yes. So I definitely encourage folks to reach out to me. Oh, we know LinkedIn. Oh, LinkedIn, obviously. <laughs> LinkedIn. I also encourage people to uh, LinkedIn. I also have a Twitter handle as well. Um, so go find me on Twitter. I, I think it's pretty accessible. I forget. I honestly forget my handle name. So I apologize. We'll, we'll include it below. It's fine. <laughs> awesome. And then um, I also encourage folks to visit my website. If you're thinking of creating a website, I'm always happy to share tips and tricks that that I followed when creating a website. It is time intensive, but again, happy to share some of those those thoughts or give feedback in any capacity. Awesome. Well, thank you again so very much. Everyone else, make sure that you are subscribed to our YouTube channel. And if you want to share your story, just hit us at hello at jasminegoodman.com. Take care.